So we've been over the last few weeks talking about hearing God, hearing God, that Jesus is the living word. Jesus is what God sounds like. That it's not so much a skill you master it is the, as it is the master you meet to hear God. And we also have heard and seen how God not only speaks through Jesus, of course, primarily, but through the written word, the Bible. And that as we read the Bible, we're to read it through the lens of Jesus, what I called a Christological hermeneutic, that everything you see in scripture is pointing to Jesus. And when you read it with that lens, then you are gonna be closer to Jesus, more discipled by Jesus, more in love with Jesus. And then last week, we talked about how God speaks to us through prophecy, where he takes his servants filled with the Holy Spirit and uses them to speak into the lives of others. And while we certainly hear his voice when it's loud and clear in these very obvious external ways, such as Jesus, the word of God and prophecy, there's another way he speaks to us that can easily be mistaken. Um, because it's not always what we might assume. It doesn't come to us the way that we might think. It's, it's more like a whisper, a, a still small voice. And it raises the probability that God is actually speaking to us far more than we might think and maybe more than we're aware of or listening to. Elijah was a, a prophet in the Northern Kingdom during the reign of Ahab. And Ahab was a very evil, wicked king. The Bible says of Ahab, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, which is never a good thing for a king of Israel to have that as your reputation. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it adds this, he did more evil than all the others before him. Wow, what a reputation. But to be honest, it was his queen, Jezebel, who called all the shots and pulled all the strings. She was a Phoenician princess from Sidon. She was, a, she was one that God had warned them about, not bringing into the camp because they would pollute with idol worship the people of God and lead them astray and we see that repeatedly throughout Israel's history. And Jezebel was certainly one of those. She persecuted anyone who worshiped Yahweh and she demanded that Israel, all of Israel, worship Baal, which was a false god and idol. And during their reign, the Lord announced through Elijah, his prophet, that there would be a severe drought in the land and it, it lasted a few years. And during that drought, Elijah decided to throw down the gauntlet and he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to a challenge, a contest on Mount Carmel. Here's the thing, all 450 prophets of Baal, in contrast to the one prophet of God at this contest, all 450 of them were promoted, were funded by Jezebel. She actually had them eat at her table. And they were her puppets. Each side was to build an altar to their God. And the God that sent fire to consume the sacrifice would be declared in Israel as the true God. 
And after the prophets of Baal made absolute fools of themselves, and Elijah sat around mocking them for their silliness, he went to work building an altar. And he took 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he placed them as an altar. And then he slaughtered a bull, and he laid the pieces upon the stack of wood that he had piled up on the altar. And then, in the middle of a drought, he called for men to go and gather 12 vats, large vessels of water, to drench this sacrifice in the wood upon which it laid. Now, they're in a drought, and there's no water around, and they're having to go down the mountain to get the water and bring it back up. I'm not sure that they were real happy about that. It seems like a waste of water too. But he did it because he wanted to be crystal clear that when fire was sent from above, it was God Jehovah that had burnt that altar and burnt that sacrifice. And then Elijah prayed and God answered. He said in 1 Kings 18 verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Very short prayer. The next word is everything. Then, then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered all of them there. What an incredible display of God's power. Now, one, of the, one of the most dramatic in all of the Bible. One of my favorite stories. But that moment of fire falling wasn't the end of it because by the end of chapter 18, it's raining cats and dogs in the middle of a drought. All because Elijah had promised and had prayed and we find a soaking wet Ahab riding back to his palace in Jezreel while a triumphant Elijah is running in front of his chariot. It's a fascinating story. Elijah was feeling pretty good. He was feeling victorious. He had had a resounding victory. The prophets of Baal had been, had been rightly taken out and Jehovah, the God, the Lord, he is God, was being raised up. But there's one little problem. His arch nemesis, Jezebel, wasn't too impressed. She wasn't even there. And when the weasel of her husband came back to tell her, she wasn't very happy about it. I'm just imagining the conversation. Uh, honey, uh, dear, my lovely queen, what is it, you weasel? 
uh, uh, well, dear, dear, you, you, I mean, you, you'll never guess what happened atop Mount Carmel. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it had I not seen it with my own eyes. Would you just stop blathering and get to the point, Ahab? Well, um, you remember that prophet of God, uh, Elijah? Really a nice fella. <laughs> uh, well, you know, he prayed and, and, and fire came down and, and, well, one thing led to another. And all of your little friends... <laughs> All those 450 prophets of Baal, well, they're a little dead. That's my interpretation. Thank you. I'll be here next week, too. She was furious. He was a wimp. And he didn't stand up to her. He invited her to be his queen in the first place. There's all sorts of problems with Ahab and Jezebel. She's furious and she swears Elijah is a dead man walking. I will do to him what he has done to my little pets, the prophets of Baal. And when Elijah heard about it, he lost heart and he lost courage And it sent a chill up and down his spine. Something had shifted. His victory had been turned into defeat. And he was scared. And all the victorious fervor evaporated as he ran 130 miles south to Beersheba. It's there that he's exhausted and demoralized and famished and wishing that he were dead. And an angel of the Lord in that place ministers to him on more than one occasion, giving him food and encouraging him to eat for his journey is to go further. And for the next 40 days and nights, he travels and does without food fasting until he arrives at Mount Horeb. Now you may know this or may not, Mount Horeb has another name, one more commonly known as Mount Sinai. The place where the Lord had appeared to Moses in the burning bush and where later he made covenant with Israel and gave them his law, the Ten Commandments. I don't think Elijah stumbled upon this place by accident. I think he deliberately traveled there to the place where the Lord had revealed himself to Moses. And in his despair, Elijah has made his way back to where it all started, in a sense. Where God had dramatically shown up to Moses at Sinai. And I think Elijah, in his despondency, is hoping to recapture that experience that Moses had. Let's pick up in the story, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. Continue reading. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Have you ever felt sorry for yourself? 
You didn't have to answer, but I think we probably all have. Have you ever been so in despair and despondency that you're just not sure that it's worth it anymore? You know, I've not done the exploits that Elijah did, but I certainly have had a pity party like he had. I felt sorry for myself. I've done so much for you, God, and I'm the only one that's good that's left. And they're all out to get me. He's paranoid, a little crazy. Elijah's hiding in a cave, quite possibly the same place a lot of scholars think that God had hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. And the Lord asks him in this place, in this cave, in this cleft, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you running from, Elijah? What are you running to, Elijah? What do you want me to do for you, Elijah? Elijah's experience is not all that different from ours when we find ourselves in despair. And when we find ourselves with a little bit of self-pity, when we find ourselves despondent or exhausted or depressed, we hide out in our own little caves, hoping to recapture want, want, what once was. If we could just get a little bit of that back, maybe it'd get better. God asks the same questions of us when we find ourselves in despair and hopelessness and famished and wondering if we should go on. What are you doing here? What are you running from? What are you running to? What do you want me to do for you? Elijah's burned out, he's downcast, he's dejected, and he says to the Lord, look, I've done my best, but I'm out. I'm finished. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm the only one left and they're about to get me. I'm out. And it's in that place that God speaks to him again to this despondent prophet. And he says in verse 11, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face with his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He knew enough to know that no man sees God and lives. For even Moses had to be shielded lest he die. A lot of us expect that when God speaks, when he shows up, it's going to be dramatic. It's going to be big. Rock splitting, earth shaking, fire consuming. Lots of special effects, a booming voice, all the razzle-dazzle. We want CGI, Jesus. Or as Pete Gregg says, we want a Marvel movie Messiah. Like that time Jesus walked on the water, that's big. 
The disciples out are scared. They're kind of getting sunk in their boat. And lo and behold, Jesus just walks out to them on the water. That's the kind of Jesus we want. But we might need to remember that this water walking Jesus does something far different than we might do as he approaches the disciples who are trying to keep afloat. Mark 6, verse 48, simply says this phrase, and he was about to pass them by. Wait, what? Huh? Jesus walked halfway across the Sea of Galilee on a stormy night just so he could pass them by? They're freaking out thinking he's a ghost and he's like, nah, bruh. I got places to be. No cap, deuces. Now I just used all of the Gen Z language I'm allowed to use. Actually between us, I'm not allowed to use it, but I'm taking my liberties today. Now, if that was the only time that Jesus did something like this, we might think, okay, that that seems odd, but sure, whatever. But it's not the only time Jesus does stuff like this. You remember those two disciples on the road to Emmaus we talked about a few weeks ago? I mean, Jesus comes up and joins them as they're walking and walks along with them for hours on the very day that he was resurrected. (laughs) And he completely does not reveal himself to them. His identity is hidden from them. They don't even know he's teaching them the Bible, but they're clueless as to who he is. And then in verse 28 of Luke 24, it says, and as they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going farther. He's walking with them this whole way without them knowing who he is and he's perfectly content with leaving it that way on the very first Easter Sunday. Making out like he has somewhere else to be. Of course, they earnestly convince him to come in and and he does. And then he breaks bread and their eyes are opened. What's up with that, Jesus? Why are you playing all these tricks? Bruh. (laughs) And then a week or so later, as if that's not enough, after a night of fishing by Peter and some of the others, which is a whole nother story that's really fascinating, we read in John 21, 14, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Of course they didn't. They're all having problems. They've seen him already. This is not the first time. But they didn't realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now he's just playing with them now. He's just toying with them. He knew full well they hadn't caught any fish. And by the way, just about every time we read about them trying to catch fish, they don't catch any fish. It takes Jesus for these professional fishermen to be effective. Pete Gregg writes, there's something delightfully playful here, 
something smiling and unassuming about the king of kings, a wry humor and a coy twinkle in his eye. But it's more than that. There's also a glimpse in all these stories of a set of qualities we never ever expected to find in the demeanor of God. Could it be that the creator of the cosmos is meek and not pushy, humble and not presumptuous, unassuming and not intrusive? Jesus seems perfectly content to walk away from the spotlight of human attention and adulation. I honestly believe that Jesus is waiting for us to open our eyes and to see him and to earnestly beg him to come in and dine with us. He loves us so much, he doesn't force us to decide. He waits for us to want him and invite him in. When Elijah is hiding in that cave, it'd be logical to think that God would show up in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. Those seem like suitable modes for God to present himself with all the flash and all of the flare and all of the bigness. And to be fair, they are all ways we find people encountering God in scripture, in the fire, in the wind, and in earthquakes. But this time for Elijah, God is not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. He's in a still, small voice. In the summer after I graduated from high school, I was 17 and I was preparing to move 1,100 miles away from Roswell, New Mexico, all the way to Mobile, Alabama. And I'd been praying about it. We had sensed, my parents and I, that this was God's will for my life. <clears throat> and I'd already been talking with uh, a couple of my roommates that had been lined up for me with the pastor there in Mobile and speaking to them on the phone. And this one roommate that I was talking to told me that he, had, that he was dating John Duke's oldest daughter. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I didn't know John Duke. I had heard about him, but I didn't know him, didn't know any of his family. And so that kind of penetrated my thinking. And one night I was laying in bed and just dreaming and praying and thinking. And I felt the Holy Spirit whisper to my heart, you're going to marry John Duke's other daughter. Now, I couldn't Facebook, Facebook stalk her at the time. Uh, I couldn't um, slide into her DMs on Instagram. Uh, we didn't have those things back in that day. I just thought that's a really rare, random thing to hear. I'm probably just making that up. But 41 years ago today, on September 17th, nine, eight, 19, not 18. <laughs> 19, 1982. I met Donna for the first time at a cell group on Highland Woods. And at that precise moment, I remembered what God had whispered into my heart. I just didn't tell her. <laughs> that would have been weird. 
God told me I'm gonna marry you. Uh, that was creepy. So I didn't do that, but I kept it. And after we got married, I told her the story. After we were married, during her first pregnancy, Donna began having serious complications. Uh, and, and it was really scary for us. And her doctor ordered her to bed. He's like, I don't think we can do anything for you. Uh, this may work itself out. You may stop bleeding. But then again, this may be the beginning of a miscarriage. And so Donna came home from school and work, and she went to bed. And the following Sunday, I was at church because I was a worship leader. And I'm leading worship, singing songs. And in between two songs in the set, just kind of the quiet place, instruments are playing, no singing is being done. I, I felt the Spirit say, He's going to be okay. <clears throat> now, you've got to know, we didn't know it was a boy at the time. We didn't have all the access that they do to gender reveals today. We didn't get those things. But I heard the Spirit say in a small, in a still small voice, he's going to be okay. And a few months later, when our baby boy was born healthy, I remembered that still small voice. And I still do. And when I was in a moment of spiritual darkness, a wilderness, largely of my own making, having walked away as a prodigal son, I was driving in the barren terrain of West Texas. And I was listening to a song by Michael W. Smith. And as he sang a very simple chorus, I heard the still small voice of the Lord whisper to my heart. Brokenhearted, do you want your healing? Trust again. There is love in his right hand. Elijah expected God to be present like he was on Mount Carmel. And that's how he assumed God would reveal himself. And to be certain, sometimes he does. But to this prophet at the end of his rope, drained of all of his energy, wishing he were dead, it's not big displays of power he witnesses. It's God's whispering voice speaking to him in a time of crisis. And interestingly enough, God asked him the same question he asked before. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers the same way as he did before. I've been very jealous for you, Lord. But the people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. But now they're trying to take my life away. The same question and the same answer, but this time something was different. Elijah, having encountered the Lord in his gentle whisper, is ready to hear what God has to say pick up the pieces, and move on. A big part of God's dealings with Elijah was to correct his warped perception of what things were happening to him. And he does the same thing for us when we will listen to the still small voice of the Spirit. Because many times we ask questions in protest, but the still small voice of Jesus will soften the hearts to hear that Jesus may not give you the answer you want, 
but he will never leave you in the midst of it. And that makes all the difference. Sometimes we long for God to reveal himself to us in powerful and dramatic ways. Elijah did. But he learned that God makes himself known not only with dramatic shouts, but also with gentle whispers. Sometimes we're tempted to run away from our problems. Elijah did. But the Lord sent him back the way he came. Later in the chapter, it says, return on your way. And then Elijah does as he's told because he begins to realize there's nothing God can't do for him there that he would have done for him here. And sometimes we feel that way. We've run out of steam in life. We have nothing else to give. We're at the end of our rope that we just can't carry on anymore. Elijah did. But God still has work for us to do. And he still has a purpose that he intends to invite us in. He told Elijah, you go now and anoint Haziel, king of Aram. That was not a Jewish king. That's interesting. And go and anoint Jehu, king over Israel. He'll take over Ahab's spot. And go and anoint Elisha as your successor. God has a plan And even in the last days of our lives, the last season of our life, we are still called upon to obey him in it. You are never too young or too old to be invited into God's purpose for your life. Sometimes we feel isolated and vulnerable, opposed in our stance, persecuted in our faith. Elijah did, but he wasn't the only one left as he had supposed. God made it clear that there were 7,000 who had not yet bowed their knee to Baal. We, as God's people, must remind ourselves that with the Lord, quietness doesn't mean absence. That loudness does not equal power. And that bigness is not required for God to speak. He's not abandoned or forgotten you. You're not out on your own. When we reach the end of ourselves, that's when we can hear him the clearest. When we've come to the end of our resources, that's when we have his resources beginning to kick in. Put your trust in him and know that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That though you may not have the fire falling on Mount Carmel experience for this day. You always have the ability to draw near to him as he will draw near to you. And you will hear his comforting, directional, and peace-producing still small voice that says, I'm with you. As he spoke through his prophet Jeremiah, call to him and he will answer. And he will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Amen. My wife is going to come and we're going to pray for you this morning and give opportunity for you to respond to what the Holy Spirit in a gentle whisper might be saying to you right now. Um. I think one of the benefits to the still small voice is it's sort of like anesthesia 
And I apologize right off the bat if David is here because he's medical and I'm going to butcher my explanation. So just <laughs> excuse me. Um, but there's a type of, of anesthesia that is used a lot of times in childbirth called an epidural. And the process of it essentially is that the physician makes a space that didn't actually exist and slides the medicine in there that then creates the relief. And I feel like the still small voice, that's the picture that I get. Hmm. It's that it's, it's God sliding up next to you and creating a space in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit that didn't exist before. And in that space, he slides in the medicine and it brings relief. Wow. That's good. So my prayer for us today is that we get the full benefit of our physician. Yes. Yes. That we let him create a space that didn't exist and come and be with us in that space and let it do all the things that we need. Yes. Amen. We're going to pray for us. And while you're sitting there and having heard what God has been saying to you all morning long, maybe all weekend long, maybe for the last week, I'm just asking you to be focused on him and receive what he's saying in the still, small voice that he is speaking it. And if you don't know what's being said and you can't quite make it out, then ask the Lord to help you to be receptive to it, to be open to it, to not resist it, to not stand in its way, to not get busy and not listen. We want, to be, we want to be in the cleft of the rock. And then when he says, come out, I'm passing by, we can cover our face and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our heart. So you do that right now. You don't have to stand or respond in any particular way. But respond to the Holy Spirit as he is speaking, as we pray. Father, thank you that when you come to us, you ask questions so that we can find the answers in you. You're here today asking questions of our hearts. Why are you here? What do you want me to do for you? And you're asking because you're ready you're ready to act. Yes, you are. Father, I ask that in my own heart, I throw open the door, that we throw open the door of our heart, and that we invite you to say what you will. Yes, Lord. And we're committed to believe so that it will come in and benefit us. Your word will come in and take up a place in our hearts that will change things, that will change us, that will bring help and comfort and purpose and healing. 
We thank you, God, for the big ways you speak in our life. The dramatic changes that have occurred in our hearts, the, the way you've let scales drop off of our eyes, brought strength and healing to our, to our bodies, made us alive in Christ, bringing us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you, God, for the bigness of what you've done in restoring our families or healing our children or bringing deliverance to our own lives. But Lord, we also thank you for that gentle whisper that you speak and probably speaking it more than we even pay attention to. You're a God who speaks. We're here because you spoke. And we want to hear when you speak to us today. So I pray for everyone here in that place that they've identified, that cleft that they find themselves in, the cave, maybe despondent, maybe famished, maybe broken in need of healing, maybe lost. And I ask that in that place, that we would all hear your still small voice saying to us, come out. Come out and meet with me. Draw near to me and I will come near to you. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with you. Lord, I pray that we will respond to you because you are the good shepherd. May we respond to you today in Jesus' name.